You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church. And I just love that you're, you're joining us, especially if it's the first time you've been uh, to a church in a while or if you're just here exploring the faith. We want you to know that we, we really love that you're here. We want to be a place of uh, people that's safe to ask questions, safe to explore. And if we can do anything to help you in your uh, walk with Christ or your exploration of who he is, just let us know. <laughs> we, that, would, that would thrill us. And so, um, but anyways, as I begin, let me just tell you... Um, I've had a lot of humiliating moments in my life. In fact, just the other day, I was with my MC, and we were talking about a story, and I said, man, this was one of the most, like, a story came up that's one of the most embarrassing moments of my life, and one of the guys stopped and said, man, you have, like, a hundred most embarrassing moments of your life, and I think, I, I really do, but a lot of them revolve around needles. I, I hate needles. I don't know about any of y'all, any other guys that were willing to admit that you, you hate needles, but... um. Here I am in front of all y'all saying that I, I hate needles. I'm not afraid to admit it. And my fear of needles began when I was in middle school. I uh, went to go get a routine shot. My mom took my sister and I to go get the shot. And uh, my sister's seven years younger than me. And so when it came time to get a shot, she was afraid. And so I just said, hey, you know, Kaylee, I got this. Like, let, this is not no big deal. Let me get the shot. I'll show you. You can watch me get it. You can see that it's not a big deal, and then you can get yours. And so I, you know, this is the macho seventh grader that I was, walked up to go get the shot and get, uh, sure enough, get it. No big deal. Walk over to my chair right next to my sister, sit down, and then immediately pass out and fall face first onto the ground. When I come to, the, my first reaction is I vomit everywhere on the floor. Talk about literally pride coming before the fall. I mean, it was like right there, played out. Needless to say, my sister didn't get her shot that day. <laughs> didn't happen. Tell that story because uh, this morning we're going to look at a story in Daniel 5 as we continue the series where we get to see the, the king be humiliated. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting story. It's, there's a lot of pretty funny elements with it, but it's not just entertaining. It's also, I think we're, we're going to see, uh, a little convicting, uh, perhaps uh, very insightful. See, for this story, it highlights the danger of a specific kind of pride and the faithful life that can come as a result of rejecting this kind of pride. And, I, you know, I... I actually kind of like talking about pride, not because I feel like I'm uh, good, that like I can teach from this from a spot of where I, like, I've conquered not having pride. That's not the case. But I like talking about topics that I think are relevant to all of us, right? So whether you're exploring faith or you're, or you're you know, a follower of Christ for many years, we all struggle with pride. And if you are saying here, like, no, I don't really struggle with pride, then uh, let, let me just t- let you know. You do. Because... <laughs> Which is a dirty trick, but it's, it's true. We, this is something that we all struggle with. So I think that this passage, you're going to find something very relevant for all of us, something that we can all chew on. So anyways, like I said, we're continuing our series in, Daniel, uh, in the book of Daniel. This whole series, we've been kind of building out this, this theme that says that we're, we're, we're looking at this book to try to learn how to do two difficult things at the exact same time. The first is, how do we live faithfully 
How do we have? How do we remain faithful to God while we live in a culture that doesn't often acknowledge God or or you know care about His values or way that He says to live? How do we remain faithful to God in that kind of culture while at the same time loving our culture well, loving the people of this culture? really well. Not disengaging, not removing ourselves and not standing back and just throwing stones or whatever, but how do we actually you know, remain faithful to God in a culture that doesn't often acknowledge him and yet engage it well so that they can know God, know that God loves them. So that's what we've been studying throughout this book, but today, today's passage highlights the truth that often the thing that makes knowing God and remaining faithful to him isn't as much uh, having to do it in a culture that doesn't, you know, know him or, or obey him. It really has more to do uh, with not what's going on out there, but what's going on in here. The, the, the number one thing, perhaps for us, that makes it hard to remain faithful to God is the pride in our own hearts. And so uh, pride, simply speaking, the way that I'm going to be talking about it today is this. It's when we think too highly of ourselves, Thinking too highly of yourself, which of course, if you think too highly of yourself, that's going to cause you to look down on other people, right? I mean, I think we can acknowledge that, but it can also cause you to go beyond that, to where you even would come to a point where you would look down on God. Thinking that your ways of doing things are better than his ways, thinking that you know better than he knows, and thinking that you're in charge instead of acknowledging that he is in charge. And so this morning, as we look at Daniel 5, we're going to see that there are two main characters. Okay? you got one who's full of pride, and you have one that is not. You have one who thinks that he holds God in his hand, and there's one who knows that it's God who holds him in his hand. And so as we look at this passage, here's what I want to encourage you to do, because it's a long passage and I'm going to read all the way through it, is that as I read it, I want you to ask and evaluate, which one of these characters are you most like? Which one of these is most like you? So if you will, go to Daniel 5, open it up in your Bible, pull it up on your phone. I also have the words up here on the screen, but I love it if you follow along in your own Bible. But as you go there, let me give you a little bit of context for this passage. For you see, a, a lot of time has passed between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. So Justin did a great job preaching last week on, the, on chapter 4. Now in chapter 5, like a ton of time has passed. In fact, just to give you a, a sense of this, since, the, since Daniel 1, when, when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem and exiled uh, Daniel and his friends and other Israelites to uh, Babylon, 66 years have passed between Daniel 1 and Daniel 5. So a lot of time has passed, which means that Daniel, who was about 15 in Daniel 1, is now about 80 in Daniel 5. In addition, since Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, uh, about 36 years have passed. And in those 36 years, King Nebuchadnezzar has died. And since he's died, there's been three or now four uh, different emperors who've come to power and had short reigns, leading up to this fourth guy named Nabonidus. 
And Nabonidus ruled for about seven years, and then he, archaeological uh, digs have shown us, and, and uh, ancient literature has, has confirmed that uh, Nabonidus at some point in time, and it's kind of mysterious where he went or why he went, but he left Babylon to go on a journey. And while he was gone on this journey, he appointed his son, Belshazzar, to rule in his stead over the city of Babylon. And so Belshazzar is now the, the ruling emperor of Babylon as this passage picks up. Now, one other bit of context. Uh, things are not looking good for Babylon. That, uh, you know, it was the most powerful empire in all of the world when Nebuchadnezzar was ruling. But since his time, it's waned in power and influence. And the Persians have become more powerful. And they've actually conquered, had many battles, many victories. And now at this point, as we'll see how this chapter ends, they've actually surrounded the city of Babylon. And they are about to take it. At this point, they haven't been able to get through the giant walls of Babylon yet. They haven't been able to sneak in, figure out how to break in. But they're, they're, like, they're there to conquer Babylon. Now, in light of all of that, the way that Daniel chapter 5 begins is really interesting. It doesn't begin the way you would think that it would begin. Let me, let me read it for you. Daniel 5 verse 1 says this. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Wait, What? Your city's surrounded, and you decide to throw a party. Okay, interesting. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Now remember, taken from the temple in Jerusalem 66 years ago. He decides, now's a good time to break out those things that we stole from the temple in Jerusalem. So verse 3 says this. Oh, I'm sorry, finished verse 2. Uh, uh, Taken from Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. It just repeats verse 2. But the, re- the author here is wanting you to recognize how wild this is. So it just repeats it and like chew on that for a second. Verse 4 says, As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, Wood and stone. Okay. As you see the pride of the king here, and can you recognize how arrogant this is? That the city is surrounded by the Persians. He throws his party. Wine's, wine starts flowing, and he decides, hey, now's a good time to break out these, these, these temple treasures, these wine goblets that were taken from Jerusalem. And uh, toast his gods with them. Now, why would he do this at this time? I mean, of all the time to do this, have this kind of party, why why right now? Pride, right? I mean, just complete pride. See, this party was a symbolic gesture uh, meant to communicate that he, the king, was in charge and unafraid. And as he fetches the goblets taken from the temple as a way to demonstrate that he, he thinks that he's just the greatest. See, for the goblets stood as a sign that they had conquered the nations and the gods of the other nations. And so specifically, he wants to remind everybody there that they had conquered the god of the nation of Israel. That's why he goes and gets these goblets. And so you can imagine, like in the middle of this party, king stands up, he's holding in his hand one of these, you know, one of these goblets from the temple, and and he, 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 you know, makes this toast. 
where he's saying, hey, guys, we have nothing to afraid, nothing to fear, no reason to be afraid because I'm the king and I'm in charge and we have conquered many nations. We've conquered many gods. We've conquered this God, the God of Israel, and in his hand he's holding the, what he feels is the proof that he holds the God of Israel in his hand. And therefore, no reason to be afraid even when his city is surrounded. But then something interesting happens. And another hand shows up. And the king's attitude changes really, really quickly. Look what happens in verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. And the king watched, in the hand, the, watched the hand as it wrote. And his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Now, <laughs> verse 6 is a very kind translation. See, because in the, in the Aramaic, this literally says that uh, the knots of his groin were loosened, which they say that his, his legs became weak. But <laughs> probably better actually translated that, <laughs> that he lost control of, of his bodily functions. Or you could say he wet himself. Or you could say other things, but we're in church, so I can't say those things. Um, but like all of the, all the color pales from his, you know, all the color drains from his face. He's completely pale. He's scared. He's scared to death. Now, you know, it's worth noting, like our, you know, the phrase, saw the writing on the wall. It comes from this. That's, that's, that is the, the original, original origin of that comes from Daniel chapter 5. And when you use that saying that, you know, that he saw or she saw the writing on the wall or the handwriting on the wall, that, that means that someone, they saw that there was a sign, there was a sign that something bad was about to happen. You know, they, they lost their job, but it wasn't a surprise to them because they saw the handwriting on the wall. Like they knew it was coming. Well, here, this is the king. He knows something bad is about to happen because he's the literal writing on the wall. But he doesn't know how bad it's going to be because he doesn't understand what was written. So here's what he does. Verse 7. The king summoned the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners. And then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple. I mean, made into royalty. And have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Why the third? Because Nabonidus, his dad, was actually the emperor, and then Belshazzar in his place, second in command. So this is the third highest, the highest position that you possibly could put somebody in for Belshazzar. It's his third highest. And so then, verse 8, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. And so King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. So, you see how scared he is, and continues to grow pale, continues to be scared, and then on top of all that, like you got this prideful king who's like, I'm the greatest, you know, and like here's, here's you know, make a toast to my gods with the God of Israel that I conquered. I hold that God in my hand, and yet here he's just completely humiliated, and then something even more humiliating happens. His mom has to intervene and help him out. No one likes that. Your mom shows up at your party to try to save it. But it says, verse 10, the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came in to the banquet hall. Now, you know, 
Commentators across the board, people say this is, this is his, the queen mother. This is the queen, Nabonidus' wife, and that therefore Belshazzar's mom, who was not, because if you remember at the beginning, Belshazzar had thrown this giant party, he has all his queens and his concubines, which is very not good, uh, all in the same room, having this party. So they're all there. And then, so who's this queen that wasn't invited? You don't invite your mom to the party with your wives and your concubines. So this is his, this is the queen mom showing up to bail his, her little son out. So it says this, ah, the queen hearing the voice of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale, honey. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians and enchanters and astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what this writing means. And so verse 13, Daniel was brought before the king... And the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? Now, a couple of things to point out here. Notice Bel- Belshazzar, the king, he, he didn't know who Daniel was. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Daniel was really high up in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, you know, chain of, of authority and as being one of his like, right-hand men. But a you know, ton of time has passed. Four emperors have passed. And so we don't know where Daniel's gone, but his reputation has remained, right? You see that his reputation here, that the queen says, he'll repeat, the Belshazzar says, this is what I've heard about you, this is what I've heard about you, that you have like the spirit of the gods with you, and you have unique insight into spiritual things, you have incredible wisdom, not only do you, can you say, can you understand what things mean, but you can tell us what to do with them. Like, here's your reputation, Daniel. So will you help me out? So in verse 14, here's what the king says. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you. You have inside intelligence, outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Here's how Daniel responds. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself, and you can give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Now, quickly, it's, it's just worth noting. You know, one of, again, a major theme throughout the book of Daniel has been, you know, living faithfully while loving well. And here you have another example where Daniel shows up in this scene, and he sees the goblets from the, from, from the uh, temple all over the place. And this would have been incredibly offensive to Daniel. And he has, he's in front of the king in the midst of this crazy party. And he doesn't say, you're out of luck, dude. <laughs> you, know, you know, have fun, figure this out on yourself. And he says, no, 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 I'll help you. Like, I, I will engage here and to specifically... Engaged to serve. 
Because that's what he's doing by helping the king out. He's serving the king. And just so the king knows that he's not serving in order to get something out of it, he turns down the king's offer. He said, you can keep your gifts for yourself. You can give them to someone else. Now, I, I will serve. I'll, I'll tell you what this means. But then, before he tells them what it means, he launches into a little bit of a history lesson, as old men often like to do. Remember, Daniel's 80 years old. So he says, let me give you a little context, young buck. Let me tell you a little something. So he goes into the story. He says this in verse 18. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, in this case, it's, it's his grandfather, but they used father in the way to just speak to the ancestor line, but your, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him. Now hear that. Gave is repeated twice here. Right off the bat, Daniel is trying to stress something to to this prideful king. He said, no, no. Nebuchadnezzar, your your grandfather, your father, he had this incredible authority. God gave him that. God gave him that. God gave him that. Repeats that multiple times. God gave that. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. And those he wanted to spare, he spared. And those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of the animals he, was lived, he lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. And in that last sentence, Daniel just powerfully sums up like the number one lesson that God sought to teach Nebuchadnezzar in his 43 years uh, in, in power. That lesson being that, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not ultimately in charge. You're not in charge. You're not in control. For the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. And so the reason that Nebuchadnezzar... Daniel says to Belshazzar, the reason that your father, your grandfather was in power over Babylon is because the Most High God gave him that power. Verse 18. And when his heart, Nebuchadnezzar's heart, became arrogant and full of pride, God humbled him until he acknowledged that God, not him, is the true sovereign king and in charge of all. He says, let me give you that context, Belshazzar. This is what God taught your father, your grandfather. And implied here is, and here's what God's wanting to teach you too. But then the, the old man Daniel calls out the young, young pride, prideful king here. He turns it towards him and he says this, 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. It's a little biting, right? You knew this. You had heard about this. And yet here you are making the exact same mistake. What are you doing? Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the temple brought to you, 
And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who, listen to this, who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life. And all your ways. See, so you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. So you held the goblets from the temple as if to say that you would hold the God of Israel in your hand. But friend, it's the other way around, Daniel says. It's actually he who holds you in his. And then he says, and because of that, he sent this hand. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is what the inscription, this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has humbled the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Historians tell us that that same night was October 12th, 539 B.C., 2,557 years ago last week, just in case you want to know. The Persian army finally found a way through the great Babylonian wall, besieged the city, and so the prideful king was slain. The great empire that Nebuchadnezzar had built, thinking that it would last forever, only lasted about 30 years after his death. It's quite the story, isn't it? I mean, you've got a lot going on here. You've got a prideful king wetting himself. You've got a mysterious floating hand. You've got writing on the wall. You have a pronouncement of destruction. You have a death of a king and an end of an empire. All within one chapter. <laughs> That's a lot going on. But with the remainder of my time, here's what I want us to do. I want us to just think about what, is, what, is any, what does any of this have to do with us, right? And it's entertaining, but what, what, you know, how is this relevant to our lives? Here's what I want to suggest to you, is that this passage is here to serve as, a, you know, in a sense, writing on the wall for each one of us, warning us of the danger of giving into spiritual pride. See, it's, this passage is here to cause us to evaluate. If we are living as if we hold God in our hand, or if we're living in light of the reality that it's actually he who holds us in his hand. And this passage is here to help us evaluate if we are thinking too highly of ourselves to the point that we are actually looking down on God. To find uh, what the Christian author Lewis Smead, uh, how he describes spiritual pride, uh, really helpful. He says it this way. He says, pride in the, in the spiritual sense is the refusal to let God be God. 
It is to grab God's status for oneself. It's turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his world and wishing instead to be the creator. Independent, reliant on one's own resources. And that is, Smead says, the great illusion. That is the delusional fantasy of all fantasies. It is the fantasy that we can make it as our own masters of our own lives. Friends, how do we know if we've fallen for that great illusion? The same illusion that Belshazzar fell for. How do we know if we've fallen in the same trap of pride? To help us evaluate, here are two sure signs that we're living as if we hold God in our hands. Here's the first one. You live as if you are in charge of your own life. And two, you live as if you know what's best. You live as if you're in charge of your own life, and then you live as if you know what's best. See, for when we live, or if I live, like I'm in charge, like Belshazzar did, and he's throwing this great party in the midst of (laughs) the the invading army, and thinking, I'm in charge, I don't have nothing to fear. We live like that same way. We think, I'm in charge. Then I'll do whatever I want. I mean, how often do we live with the attitude that says, you know what, I have the final say on what I do with my body, on what I do with my money, and what I do with my time. Like, I'm in charge, and so I call the shots in my own life. You know, what's really interesting is how we can take that attitude into God's Word when we're saying, like, okay, no, I want to study God's Word and do what it says, but oftentimes, if we live as if we're in charge, here's what we do. We think, yeah, I'll do what God says as long as it seems practical and helpful in my eyes. Friends, if you've ever thought that way, picking and choosing what part of God's word you're going to apply, that is a sure sign of spiritual pride in your life. It's an indicator that you hold God, or you think you hold God, in your hand instead of seeing that he holds you in his. One of the things that causes me to have that attitude at times is this other thing. I think that I know what's best. I think I know what's best, and so therefore I think that my way is better than God's way. This is one of the main reasons that I would choose not to obey God. When it comes down to it, I think the way that I want to do things is going to be the best way for me. For example, recently Krista, um, my awesome wife, she got a, uh, a promotion at work, great pay raise that came along with that, really awesome. We were, there was much rejoicing in the box household. And uh, so we, get, this, we uh, get the first paycheck. And, you know, it, like, we're excited. <laughs> and we have things, like we had a, our car broke down over the summer. We had to get a new car, so we had a car payment. And there's all kinds of stuff that I'm thinking, man, this is going to be really helpful. We can, we can make up, like we fell behind. We're going to be able to make up ground fast. Plus we had, like, you know, kids going back to school, wintertime approaching. They need new shoes. They need new clothes. So we had all these things. We could spend all this money on it. As I'm thinking about it, I just, you know, hear the spirit, voice spirit saying, how much of that money are you going to give away? I mean, how much of that is you, are you going to give away to Midtown and give away to others? And I thought, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get to that. You know, but, but this first check, right, is really about catching up. And so if we could just use all this for that stuff and then maybe treating ourselves out, treating ourselves a little bit to celebrate, and then we'll get to the giving part. 
And I just think, that makes a lot more sense. I mean, i got to get out of this debt. I hate being under debt, out of debt with this car payment. Like, let's just get out of that first. Now, I was thinking, my way is better than your way, God. You say to be generous. You say to give. And I'm saying, yeah, I will, but on my timetable. Thankfully, I have a good friend who knew that this paycheck was coming, and he asked me, hey, how much of that are you going to give? And I said, shut up. You know, thankfully, by his spurring on and God used him in my life, we, we, gave, we gave, you know, generously there. But it, it was not easy. Why? Because I think my way is better than his way. Yes, do you see the pride in that? Here's how this also shows up for me. When things don't go the way I think they should go, I see this pride come to the surface. Two weeks ago, I shared how my, my dad's cancer has recently returned. He had cancer last year. The doctors thought that they got all of it, uh, but then it came back a year later, and it spread. And so he had surgery, and happy to report the surgery went well, really well. They got all, all of it, but they had to remove the tumor on his lower abdomen. They had to remove his spleen. It, it's, you know, it's no small thing. A week from tomorrow, he'll begin chemo, and he's going to do this long row of six months of really intense chemo. Appreciate your prayers for him. In the midst of that, I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? And my dad is awesome. My dad, if you don't know, he's a pastor, uh, Hill Country, Fluorville, the church that started Midtown Church. That's that church. It's like, God, I'm thinking, how is it good? How is it best for my dad to have cancer? And that doesn't make any sense. I mean, that's just stupid. God. See, I know the way that things ought to go. I know my, how my life should go. I know how my dad's life should go. And God, you're getting it all wrong. <laughs> Hear the pride in that? And yet, can you relate to that? I mean, the car doesn't start. You lose the job. You get sick, loved one dies, and you're like, man, yeah, what are you doing? See, I know how my life should go, and you're getting it all wrong. My way is better than your way. Get on my page, and if you don't get on my page, then I'm getting away from you. I'm done with you. And so many people walk away from God because life isn't going the way that you want it to go, and you think God's getting it wrong. And friends, I say this to you just like I have to say it to myself over and over and over again in light of my dad's cancer. That is pride. Who are we to think that we know better than the God of the universe, the most high God sovereign over all? Pride is thinking I'm in charge. Pride is thinking that I know best. And I think I can hold God in my hand when in reality it is God who holds us in his. That's what will free us from this kind of pride. Let me give you two things. The thing that will free us from this pride and the danger that comes with it is this. We have to believe what Daniel believed. We have to believe what Daniel believed. 
Namely, here's what Daniel believed. I could, I could sum it up to two things. It's this. One, he believed that God is who he says he is. He believed that God is who God says he is. Namely, in this passage, you hear this. He, he's echoing this to Belshazzar. He says, here's who God is. He's the most high God who is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. He is the one in charge. And here's who God is. God holds in his hand your life and all your ways. That's who God is. In addition, he believed that God will do all that God has promised to do. Daniel believed God is who he says he is and that he will do all that he has promised to do. And for Daniel, that promise was that God had brought him into exile for a good purpose. As Jeremiah 29 states, we've looked at this passage over and over again throughout this series, where God says, I'm sending you into exile. I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. I want you to make sure it prospers and you'll prosper. I've got good plans for you there to help this city know who I am because I'm a God who wants to be known amongst the nations. I have a purpose for you here. That's my promise. You're not there by accident. But he also, Daniel, also held on to another promise found in the same chapter of Jeremiah 29. This is a promise that many of us cling to that was specifically, in this case, made to Daniel and the exiles. And here's what he held on to. Jeremiah 10 through 11 says this. This promises that when God says, what the, here's what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Stop there. Here's the promise. You will not be there forever. 70 years, you're coming back home. And then God continues to say, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And Daniel hung on to these promises, believing that God would do what he said he would do. That we're not going to be left here. God has not abandoned us. He's bringing us home in 70 years. History tells us that that is what happened. After 70 years, the Israelites were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And that God had a plan for them, and he held on to that. I'm certain there are times when Daniel thought, God, I would not be doing the things the way, I would not be doing things the way that you are doing them. You know, the whole exile thing, the whole multiple emperor thing, the whole, you know, all of that stuff. Next week, the lions and the, the, the throwing into the lion's den. Yeah, I think I would skip that part, you know, if I was Daniel. It's like, if you want my advice, God, let's skip that. But, but he remained faithful, guys, 80 years. Remained faithful. Why? Because he held on to the truth. God, I trust you. I can trust you that you are who you say you are and you're going to do what you promised to do. And so I'm going to trust that your way is best. And you're going to do what you said you'll do. So I'm not going to act as if I'm in charge. And I'm not going to buy into the lie that my way is best. But I'll live knowing that you hold my life in your hand. And in your hands is the best place I could be. I don't have time to go into this like I wanted to. But it's really, like, just, just to just give you another proof that this is true. You, we don't need another proof. Like, God's word is proof. But outside of history, 
Like, if we look at history, what's really interesting is think, God, what are you up to with this whole exile and all this stuff? You say you, you're going to bring them to Babylon to make your name known, that it would prosper, that, that they would prosper. I'm like, how does all that work, God? History shows us that the whole Babylon, Babylonian exile gave birth to, the, to the, the synagogue system within Judaism. And where instead of just worshiping at the temple, the, the synagogues were spread throughout the whole you know, Babylonian empire because there the Jews were dispersed and they would gather together to worship God. And in the synagogues, that's where they would gather. And as a result of gathering there amongst the people of Babylon, all the different nations of Babylon, there became a new group of people. They were called the Gentile God-fearers. These were Gentiles who began to know the God of Israel because of the synagogue system. You fast forward 600 years later when Jesus shows up on the scene. He lives, dies, and rises again and then tells his disciples, I want you to be my witnesses to get the good news of who I am and what I've done to make way for people to be reconciled to me. I need you to tell people that. And where do they go? They go to the synagogues all over the known world. You just read Acts. It's just Paul showing up at one synagogue after another synagogue after another synagogue to declare the good news of Jesus. And the people who most readily put their faith in Christ are the Gentile God-fears. And they come to faith in droves. And as a result of what God does through that, we have heard the gospel. Guys, is God good? Is he in control? Is he in charge? And is this way better than our ways? Absolutely. But we won't even be able to wrap our mind around what's, what's good for us in a year's time, much less what's good for the world in 2000. 500 years later. Daniel knew God is who he says he is. He's to do what he's promised to do. And so he said, I'm going to live like you hold me in your hand. You're in charge. Instead of me acting like I'm in charge and I know best and I hold you in my hand. I'm not buying into the great delusional fantasy of all time. Friends, if we believe what Daniel believes, we won't either. But here's the thing. How do we believe that? I mean, how do we believe that? What will cause us to believe that? Here it is. We've got to reflect on the gospel. We have to reflect on the gospel. See, the number one thing that will cause us to believe that God is who he says he is, the most sovereign, most high God in charge of everything, is that, and that he keeps his promises, the number one thing that will help us believe that is the good news of Jesus. For the gospel shows us that even when humankind rebelled to the point of killing God the Son, God was still in control, overturning the rebellion of humankind to make the way for us to be reconciled to him. Is that not the ultimate proof of his control? And when we reflect on the cross, we find the ultimate proof that God's in charge in his way is best, and that God truly does hold us in his hand, and it's in his nail-pierced hands we find the proof that there is no better place to be. My dad has been an awesome example to me through this and his battle with cancer. Cancer. Shortly after hearing that his cancer had returned, he sent an email to people asking them to pray for him. And in his email, he wrote these words. He says, Kathy, that's my mom, Kathy and I don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds our future. And so do you. This is the great comfort to us and to all of us who are facing uncertainty. God is good and God is great. 
And then he included this verse, Psalm 31, 14 and 15. But I trust you, O Lord, and I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Guys, let's repent from the spiritual pride in our lives and rejoice in that truth that God holds us in his hand. And if we do, we will find a peace that comes from knowing him and we will be free to live faithfully with him all of our lives. So let's reflect on the gospel now to help us in that. And by taking communion, communion tables in the front and in the back, anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone, forgiveness of your sins is welcome to come and take communion. You don't have to be a partner here at Midtown Church. As you take this, may you remember Jesus' body broken for you. His blood spilled for you. His hand pierced for you. And may it remind you that he is trustworthy and that, there's, that he's in charge. And even the rebellion to the point of killing Jesus does not move God out of his sovereign rule, but it is the very thing that points to the fact that nothing can. He is always in charge, and he is also the best. <laughs> that he would die for us even when we have this pride in our lives. So as you take this, may the truth of who he is humble us. And may we say to him, God, I'm glad you're in charge. And God, I believe that your way is best. Help me live in light of this. Knowing that you are who you say you are. And you've done what you said you would do. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are so often full of this spiritual pride, guilty in Belshazzar, guilty in us, thinking that we're in charge, thinking we know what's best. God, thank you that you have promised that you will forgive us and that Jesus died in order for us to be forgiven and be reconciled to you. And God, I pray that as we take communion now and as we sing these songs in response, that you would bring these truths home to our heart that we would more fully believe or that you hold us in your hand and there's no better place to be. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org. 